Please turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, we're going to be in verse 19 and go to the end of the chapter this morning. Colossians 1 verse 19. Let's go to the Lord in prayer once again and just ask that he would bless the teaching of the word. So, Father, we worship you. We thank you for who you are. Your name is hallowed. You're set apart. You're good. You're gracious. You're, you're consuming. You're powerful. And Lord, we don't want this morning to just be a a routine, but we're here to meet with you. We want to hear what you would speak to us through your word. So Lord, would you bless this time? And we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to back up to verse 15 and read down uh, to verse 19 to get the context and more importantly, get the majesty of Christ as we go into the second half of the chapter. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, which is... Who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence? And we pick up in verse 19, for it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. This morning we're going to be looking at life in Christ. What does it really mean to live in Christ and what Christ has done for us and how that impacts our lives and the hope that we have moving forward? And what we're reminded here is that in Jesus... All the fullness of God dwells. The church of Colossae was facing false teaching. There were the Gnostics that were coming and saying, well, that's great that you believe in Jesus, but you really need to be pursuing this higher knowledge. And so Paul, very systematically, very carefully, is laying that foundation once again of the greatness, the grandeur of who Jesus is. That Christ is the express image of the Father. Christ is the creator. Christ is God. He's the sustainer. He holds all things together. He's the head of the church, and in him the fullness of God dwells. And if you're not careful, as we walk with the Lord, there's going to be those that try to rob from you the greatness of Jesus. And I don't know that it's always intentional, but over time, we're going to start to have this tendency to say, oh yeah, I've heard about a Christ. And maybe there's something a little bit more. Or maybe there's something that I'm missing out on. Or this, this greater knowledge or this, this greater experience. Well, that's wonderful that you believe in Jesus, but you need this over here. And church, I, I want to tell you, I want to declare to you that Jesus is more than enough. Jesus is sufficient. Jesus is grand and great and what we currently need in our lives today is Christ. In Christ the fullness of God dwells. We don't ever outgrow Christ. Amen. He's everything and he's everything that we need and the fullness of God dwells in him and this is what Christ has accomplished for us in verse 20. And by him to reconcile all things to himself. By him whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. So if you're taking notes this morning, the first thing that we see life in Christ is we're reconciled by Christ. 
What does the word reconciled mean? It means to be brought together. Many times we see this in human relationships where we've wronged each other. And normally, we've both done things wrong in the relationship. And for things to be reconciled, there's conversation, there's humility, there's forgiveness, confession, and reconciliation takes place. But with God, it's us that have sinned. It's us that have fallen short, that's caused us to be separated from God. And God has done everything to reconcile us back to himself. And it's through the blood of Jesus. Notice the the focus here where it says, having made peace through the blood of his cross. If you know Christ as your savior, if you've trusted him for salvation, your condition before God is one that you're reconciled, past tense. You've brought into peace with God. And what a great place to be in by the work of Christ. The blood of Jesus was enough to pay the price for our sin. And this is really the message of the Bible leading to the cross of of Jesus Christ. It shows us our need for Jesus. In the Garden of Eden, you'd think a perfect environment would bring us to a place where we would have peace with God. But what did Adam and Eve do with their perfect environment? They sinned, right? And they couldn't blame it on their parents. There was sin that they chose and it separated from God. Well, how about just give me some rules? If it's not a perfect environment, how about God just just tell me what you want me to do? And I'll live up to these rules and I can have peace with God. And so God did that, didn't he? Through Moses, God gave the law and the children of Israel fell short from the law. We fall short from the law. It shows us our need for the blood of Jesus. All of these sacrifices that are happening in the Old Testament, the sacrifice of animals could not take away sin, but it showed the need for atonement. It showed the need for death to be able to provide forgiveness. Well, maybe it's not rules. Maybe it's not the environment. Maybe that we're innately good and we just need the opportunity to do what's right in our own eyes. That's the book of Judges. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes and it was a miserable mess. You see the tremendous wickedness that's described in the book of Judges and we see that today, don't we? A lot of times that's our anthem. I'm just gonna do what's right in my own eyes and it's led to so much sin and so much wickedness. So as we journey through the Old Testament, we see God is showing us our need for our Savior. He's showing us the need for the blood of Jesus Christ and Christ was crucified for us to cause us to be reconciled to God when we believe in him, when we trust in him. There has been a misinterpretation of verse 20. Some have taken verse 20 and come away with a theology that's called universalism. That everybody is saved whether they believe in Jesus or not. That Christ died upon the cross and his sacrifice takes away all sin, so you don't have to believe in Christ in order to be saved. But unfortunately, that doesn't line up with Christ's teaching. You know, that doesn't line up with the rest of the New Testament. So you've got to take verse 19 and put it in context of Scripture. And it's Christ who said, whosoever believes in me has everlasting life. But to those who have rejected me, they will receive judgment. And so the reconciliation takes place through faith. As we trust in Christ and what he's done for us, then we enter into that place of being reconciled before God. In verse 21, it shows us our need for reconciliation. 
And you, once who were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. I think many times we don't understand the weight of our sin before a holy God. There's kind of this idea that floats around that somehow God is unjust or unloving by judging sin. That he's too heavy-handed. And with that really comes two misconceptions. One is is that our sin is not that big of a deal. It's not really wrong. And so God, it's unfair for you to judge me according to my sin but it also undermines the the holiness of God. And from God's perspective, we were alienated from him before we received Christ. There was a need for reconciliation. We were separated from, from God. And we were enemies to God in our minds. See, because with sin, there's the outward sin, there's the things that we say and do, but there's also the inward sin of the things that we think and what's in our hearts And our minds and our hearts are opposed to God. We're in that place where we're enemies to God and we desperately needed the grace of God to bring about the reconciliation of sin. So in some ways, the good news begins with bad news, doesn't it? Of us understanding that we're sinners. Of us understanding that we can't bridge this gap between us and God, and we need Jesus to be the great reconciler. And thankfully, he is the great reconciler. It's not so surprising that God would bring righteous judgment upon sin. What is so surprising is that he would give his son to pay the price for our sin. Amen? Right? So, verse 21, verse 22, in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. So for Christ to be the reconciler, he's God. He's the creator. He's the all-sufficient one. He's the head of the church. In him all things consist. But yet he humbled himself, took on human flesh, and in his flesh through death, through crucifixion, he then is able to present us holy. He's able to present us blameless and above reproach in his sight. Heaven's going to be a boasting session on Jesus, (laughs) It's not going to be about us. It's going to be about Christ and his sacrifice that resulted in us being holy and resulted in us being blameless. Jesus is presenting us before the Father. So we rejoice in this. We, we find great joy in the fact that we're reconciled by Christ if we know Christ as our Savior. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, today might be the day where you choose to believe. And as you believe, you're, you're saved. But if you're in Christ, as we look at the circumstances of our lives, you maybe didn't sleep very good last night. There might be financial difficulty, relational difficulty, physical challenges, heartbreak. But yet we know, I've got peace with God. I may not have peace with my boss right now. (laughs) I don't necessarily have peace with my finances right now. There's this difficult relationship in my life, but, but I've got peace with God. Jesus has brought me into that place where I'm reconciled. In verse 23, we see the exhortation to remain in Christ. And that's our second point. If indeed you continue in faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Paul here says, guys, 
you've heard the gospel, and I'm a servant of the gospel, and I want you to continue in the gospel. I want you to be grounded and steadfast in the gospel. Remain in the gospel. Paul's saying it's wonderful that you believed the gospel, that Jesus died for your sins and rose again. Now don't move away from that. Don't let these false teachers come and tell you that Jesus isn't God, that you don't need Christ, that there's some other answer out there, that God is unjust in bringing righteous judgment. Remain in the gospel. And that's true for us as well. Maybe you look back on your life and go, man, Five years ago, I trusted the gospel. Five months ago, I trusted the gospel. Fifteen years ago, I trusted the gospel. Praise the Lord. But keep trusting the gospel today. And why would we ever want to move away from the gospel? Why would we want out of the gospel? It's so good. (laughs) It's the free gift of God. It's our Savior, Jesus Christ. On Labor Day, I ran a half marathon. It was a really fun day for me because it was our 18th wedding anniversary. So we got to go out for dinner and celebrate. And in the morning, I ran a a half marathon, 13.2 miles. Now, I never, ever thought in my life I would run a half marathon. So probably over the last, I don't know, three and a half, four years, I've come to try to take a little bit better care of my body uh, physically. You know, I'm kind of historically been that guy of like, why should I care about my body? I'm going to get a glorified body. You know, like, I don't go to the gym because, well, I'll be buff in heaven and those type of things, right? And I've come to understand, like, man, my body's a gift from, from the Lord. And as I've watched my dad's trajectory with, with his health, I've gone, man, by, by God's grace, I would love to have a little different health picture. Now, even by trying to make healthy choices, that doesn't mean that necessarily that's going to mean good health. But okay, Lord, you've given me this physical body. I want to try to take care of it. And so this kind of led to, well, I think I want to try to do a a marathon, half marathon. So I signed up in the summer and that's when it got real because I put some money into it, right? Put this money down for, for this race and running and preparing. And, you know, my normal runs were three to five miles. And this idea of trying to get to 13.2 miles, and there was training involved that I didn't like, that my my flesh didn't like. And this is why, is because it's this long, gradual process of adding a little bit more distance if you don't want to get hurt. So, okay, my long run is going to be on Friday mornings, and it's going to go from five miles to six miles. And then the next week, it's going to go from six miles to seven miles, and you get, get the idea. And what I wanted to do is to go from five miles to 10 miles, right? To go from five miles to 12 miles, like I can just do this and go out there and be fine. But my body was telling me, no, you've got to build up the strength. And that's what I was reading online and talking to runners. And and that's what they were saying. And And then as you're running that far, I would tend to feel really good up front. Like, oh, it's so beautiful. Sun's coming up. God's so good. And I'd go too fast, right? And then I get to like mile five or six. It's like, Lord, please help me. Please. Like, I'm dying here, you know? So I had to pace myself. I had to go, man, if I want to have anything left at the end of this run, I got to slow down up front. 
And the cool thing about this run is they have pacers, where runners who are more experienced, they've got a sign that says, okay, if you want to finish this race at this time, then just stay with me the whole time, right? So everybody starts off, and they're like, (laughs) going fast. And I'm like, I'm just going to stay with my pacer, right? Just going to stay with my guy, because this is the pace that I need to run this thing if I'm going to finish. And he was a, a huge blessing. And through this process of running this race, I know that God was challenging my character to say, Eric, it's not a sprint. The Christian life is, is not a sprint. Church, it's not about having a great month with the Lord. <laughs> it's about saying, you know what? I want to walk with the Lord through the rest of my life. You know, I'm going to have to pace myself. I'm going to have to prepare myself for the marathon. Yes, I believe the gospel today, but I've decided I want to follow Christ. And as long as the Lord gives me breath, I want to believe the gospel, right? And having that mentality of I'm going to remain in the gospel. I'm going to finish strong in the gospel. And on the flip side of this, where it started to get fun is I would do my long runs on the Santa Fe Trail going north up into the Air Force Academy. And each week I got to go a little farther and see more of the Air Force Academy. I started to look forward to, I wonder what's down the trail a little bit more. And that began to speak to me like, God's got something more. Like he's, he's got something next year. He's got something five years from now. And I want to keep walking with him. I want to keep trusting the gospel and, and see what the Lord has in this adventure. So Hopefully that illustration just resonates. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. Remain in the gospel. Stay steadfast in the gospel. Through the long haul of life, there's going to be a lot of difficulty and a lot of challenges and a lot of failure on our part, but this is our anchor. I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I believe that he rose again. He's my my savior. And then verse 24 is Paul's response to the gospel. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is in the church. Let's first talk about what this verse is not. It sounds like Paul may be saying there's something lacking in Christ's sacrifice, in Christ's atonement. But that can't be the case because it doesn't even make sense with the prior paragraph. The prior paragraph was Christ is the great reconciler. And his blood brings us into peace with God. So what in the world is Paul talking about? I think that Paul is understanding as he's reflecting on what Christ has done is the suffering of Christ brought about salvation and the forgiveness of sins. The suffering of Christ upon the cross has impacted my heart and my life. So I'm willing to enter into suffering for you. There's nothing lacking in the suffering of Christ But Paul says, I'm willing to follow in the footsteps of Christ so the church can be encouraged and unbelievers can be impacted. And this is a difficult response to the gospel if if we're honest, right? Up to this point in the message, we're like, yes and amen. Man, praise the Lord that Jesus is my reconciler. Yeah, I want to remain in the gospel. I want to be anchored in the gospel all of my days. But then we look at verse 24 and we go, am I willing to suffer for other people's spiritual benefit? Am I seeing myself as a minister of the gospel, as a servant of of the gospel? 
It's amazing how God uses suffering in our lives, but he also uses suffering in other people's lives as they're watching us, as they're witnessing our lives. Think of Lazarus who died and rose again. John's gospel tells us that people came to see Jesus and Lazarus. We're known by our suffering. If someone loses their spouse or one of their children, they're known by that. They're like, hey, you know, they lost their wife. Hey, their seven-year-old died of, of cancer, right? And when there's real tragedy in our lives, all of a sudden, other believers are beginning to watch our lives. Our friends and family are watching in a closer way. Our coworkers are, are watching in a closer way. And the sufferings become a platform to display Christ. And so Paul says, I'm embracing suffering here. I'm actually rejoicing in my suffering because I know it's going to be for your benefit. The gospel's impacted me, so now I'm going to enter into suffering. As I was thinking about this and praying about this yesterday afternoon, I was wrestling with this concept. You know, am I willing to suffer? Am I willing to rejoice in suffering for the cause of Christ? And my honest answer with the Lord was, I don't know. I don't know. If it's like, Lord, sign me up for suffering, there's a part of my flesh that says, I like my comfort. I like things going well in in my life. But yet, I felt the Spirit of God saying, the suffering is worth the glory on the other side of it, right? Right? And that's true with Christ. His suffering was well worth the glory on the other side. Paul, if he were here sitting with us this morning, I think he would say, you know, the suffering for the cause of Christ was worth it. It was worth it. Now that I'm in eternity, it was absolutely worth it. But I don't know that being used by God in the way that we desire can come without suffering. The way that God is going to use our lives to impact believers and to reach unbelievers is going to involve suffering. As Christ left comfort and entered into this world to bring reconciliation, as we say, you know what, there's something more important than my comfort, it's people knowing the love of Jesus Christ. I witnessed this concept in my pastor's life uh, growing up, the, the suffering and then how God used his life. Uh, His name's John Corson. Uh, He's written some really good Bible commentaries, has some great teachings if you want to look him up and be blessed with some great nuggets and understandings of of who Christ is. We started going to his church, Applegate Christian Fellowship, when I was 12 or or 13. And I got to know uh, his two older children, Peter John and Jesse uh, Corson. And we went to the same small high school And John's wife passed away when his kids were young, three young kids in a car accident. They were headed up to do some cross-country skiing, car accident, his wife uh, passes away. So I'm hearing that through his kids, and then Jesse, who became a really good friend of mine and had a big part of me coming to know Christ as my Savior when I was 16, November, she passed away in a car accident. She was on her way to school. Her tire was a little flat. Icy morning there in Oregon, hit a telephone pole. And her and her mom died of the same injury. It was both a neck injury that took their lives, both a a car accident. So you think about that. You know, you lose your wife 
And then 13 years later, so you, you lose your, your daughter. And then this year, Peter John passed away and went home to be with the Lord, and he's a year older than me. In his early 40s, he died of cancer, and he has four daughters. So John has lost his wife, his daughter, his son, and I had the opportunity to go out to the memorial service for, for Peter John, and it reminded me a lot of Jesse's memorial years ago, and there's just such a deep and unique pain of him burying his daughter and also burying his son, but also inside of John's heart is just this tremendous love for Jesus, and he's had tremendous impact. I mean, his teaching really has gone out throughout the world, and when you listen to John, what he really understands is the suffering of Christ upon the cross, and he's able to articulate it. Where do you think that was gained? Through his own suffering. And when we suffer, it gives us the opportunity to fellowship in Christ's suffering. And Paul realizes that, and I think that's what he's expressing here. As he's prayed about things, as he's calculated things, instead of getting resentful about his suffering, he says, I'm going to rejoice in my suffering because it's going to bring about spiritual fruit. All of us will wrestle with our suffering. Suffering past, suffering present, suffering in the future. And in that moment to be able to say, I see what God's doing in a bigger way. I see what God is using this for to encourage believers and impact unbelievers. In verse 25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you, to fulfill the word of God. The word minister means servant. Paul saw himself as a servant unto the Lord. And he says, according to the stewardship from God, he says, God has entrusted this to me. A steward would take care of things that didn't belong to them. And God has entrusted the gospel to us. We're, we're a steward of the gospel. We're a steward of the grace of God. We're a steward of the calling that he's placed upon our lives, but we don't own it. And we get to answer to the Lord for it. And Paul had received his calling from the Lord, but we've received our calling from the Lord. And part of our response to Christ in this life in Christ is to be able to say, man, Jesus has entrusted the gospel to me. And I'm going to listen to the voice of my good shepherd as he's leading me to love people, as he's leading me to be able to, to share the gospel. God has placed a calling on each and every one of our lives. And it looks different, and that's the beauty of the, the body of Christ. But to say, God, I'm a steward before you for what you've entrusted to me. And guess what? We're not going to answer for anybody's calling but our own, right? We're going to answer before the Lord for what he's called us to do and what he's asked us to do. And I want to encourage you this morning that you are called by God. And that's what makes a Christian life so exciting, right? This is the equipping time as we're being launched out. This isn't the end game. This is where God is building us up as we fellowship with believers to, to send us out into his calling. And it's a beautiful thing. God uses the, the weak and the foolish to confound the wise. But what we see in Paul is he said yes. He said yes to God's call. And he said, I want to do this well unto God's glory. He goes into this mystery in verse 26. The mystery 
which had been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. God has this tremendous mystery that's not beyond knowing, but isn't going to be revealed until this right time. And Paul says it has been revealed. To them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. (laughs) To a Jewish reader, to a Jewish believer, they really struggled with this idea that God could love the the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people. And this was part of this mystery that God would bring Gentiles into the kingdom, non-Jewish people into the kingdom. And here's the mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And this is the reality of Christ, (laughs) that Christ in you is the hope of glory. We have just read in Colossians chapter one of the majesty of Jesus, that he's the creator, that he's the image of the invisible God, that he is the sustainer, that he holds all things together. The fullness of God dwells in him. He's the head of the church. But now it becomes very personal. It's not Jesus up there, which is true, but it's Jesus in you. And Jesus in you is the hope of glory. Throughout the Old Testament, it was an external relationship with God, meaning that God was not living inside of them. Part of the new covenant is that the Holy Spirit now lives in us. Jesus lives inside of us. And because Jesus lives inside of us, there's hope of glory. He's gonna be faithful to complete that good work that he started in us. So as we wrestle with calling and we wrestle with being a witness and being a steward of the gospel, we really quickly come to a place of, God, I can't do this. I can't live up to this calling that you have given to me. I can't live up to being a good steward of the gospel, but guess what? It's not up to us. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. And this is the mystery This is the good news that Christ is living inside of us and empowers us. And at least my experience, and and maybe I have a little bit of a a skewed view of this, is a lot of books that I read that have to do with how we're supposed to live the Christian life leave out Christ in you as the hope of glory. And they teach really good biblical truths of how we're to live in sexual purity, of how we're to treat each other as husband and wife, you know, how we're to live at work, how we're to parent, but yet they leave out the power to be able to fulfill that. And so I get really discouraged. I read these books on, you know, how to do the Christian life, and then I fail before Tuesday, you know? And it almost seems like the more I focus on it, the more I fail. You ever been in those places where it's like, okay, it's time for me to get a handle on my temper. I'm not going to get mad. I'm not going to get mad. I'm not going to get mad. Man, I'm so mad about not getting mad. Right? You know? And so it's truth. It puts it out there and even gives practical ways to be able to apply it. But there isn't bringing us to the feet of Jesus and saying, look, there's no possible way you can do this apart from Christ. You're going to need Christ's help, but yet he's in you and he's ready to to give help. I mean, let's think about it for just a moment. Let's take husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. That's a tall stack of pancakes, right? Not, Not the calling to love our wives, but the definition of love. It's not just 
just love your wife. It's as Jesus loves the church. I, I, I got to be Jesus in this thing? I'm never getting married, right? <laughs> right? That's how I felt when I was engaged. Just like, I, I can't do this. Christ in you is the hope of glory. And as we go before the Lord and we say, God, you're calling me to this. I can't do this on my own. And I'm going to need you. And I'm going to listen for your voice. And would you direct me and empower me? And that then leads to, to victory. We know that we should be reading the word of God, right? This is how God primarily speaks to us. And sometimes we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and it's like, okay, it's time for me to grow as a Christian. I'm going to start reading the Bible and I better do it in a year. So I get the merit badge of you read the Bible in a year. I don't know where that came from, but we feel a lot better about ourselves. I did it in a year. Woohoo, right? So we start getting after it. But yet it seems dry, it seems stale. God's not speaking to us. Something's missing. And it goes by the wayside. What if we came before the Lord and said, God, I I would really like to read the word more and understand it, but I just don't seem to have the hunger for it. And I don't seem to have the discipline for it. But I know that you're in me. So would you give me a hunger for the word? And would you give me an ability to understand it? And I don't really care if I get through it in a year or not but I want to grow in a deeper relationship with you. See the difference? It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. God, I know that I'm supposed to do my work unto you, but I'm really struggling. I don't feel like going to work today, but I know that you live inside of me, so would you help me? Christ in you is the hope of glory. Overcoming sexual temptation and sexual sin. God, you know that I can't do this apart from you. So, Lord, would you help me? And this is such good news. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. The same spirit that rose Christ from the dead lives inside of you. Listen to the voice of our good shepherd and respond to what he is saying. Really listen and then respond. Verse 28 says, Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Paul says, it's Jesus that we preach. It's his death. It's his resurrection. It's his presence in the life of a believer. If you're going to talk to someone about their marriage, talk to them about Jesus in the midst of their marriage. Don't just give them a bunch of tools and say, punt, have fun, right? If you're going to talk to someone about overcoming lust and overcoming anger, talk to them about Jesus, Because it's Jesus, it's Christ in them that's going to be a hope for for victory. If we get the privilege of being able to talk to an unbeliever, let's talk to him about Jesus. Guess what? We don't have a political message. The church does not have a political message. Jesus is not joined to a particular party. Republican, Democrat, Independent, he's above all of that. And if we have the opportunity to share with someone who doesn't know Christ, let's not give them politics. Let's give them Jesus. Let's preach Jesus. Let's share Jesus because it's Jesus who's the one who saves. But then also teaching in wisdom and encouraging in wisdom so that everyone would be perfect in Christ, mature in Christ. And Paul ends in a really challenging way, in a beautiful way. He says, to this end I also labor striving according to his working which works in me. So Paul says that this is what he labors for. And what he's laboring for 
is his work which works in him mightily. And the two concepts almost seem contradictory, don't they? As I'm working and I'm laboring, like someone who's laboring in the field or laboring to build something, but what is he laboring for? He's laboring that God would work in him mightily. Pleading before the Lord saying, Jesus, would you work in me? Jesus, would you help me? Would you equip me to be able to to be a witness? And that's the reality of what we see in Paul's life is Jesus is working in him mightily. And that's what Paul's pressing in towards. And that's what Paul is, is striving for. I do think that there is a place for us where God wants us to make a decision. He wants us to put in effort. And as we make that decision and put in effort, we're looking to him for him to do a work in us that we can't do in ourselves. It's like the man with the withered hand in the Gospels. Jesus tells him, I want you to extend your, your hand. And he could have said, well, I can't. But instead he said, Jesus, you're asking me to, so I'm going to trust. And as he did that, then he was healed. And so here we go. Say, all right, Lord, I'm going to labor. I'm going to strive. But what I'm laboring for is that, God, you would work in me. And that your work would be powerful in and through my life. So I hope this morning you're really encouraged. The life in Christ, that you're reconciled by Christ. Remain in Christ. Remain in the gospel. Never move from the gospel. Respond to the gospel. Maybe this morning there's fresh calling that the Lord is speaking into your life and say yes. Maybe you don't have the specifics yet, but you respond and say, Lord, I'm in. Even if it involves suffering, I'm in. I want to see the glory of the other side. And then this great hope, this great reality. It's not by might nor my power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. It's, it's Christ in you is the hope of glory. Is there hope of being able to be a witness? Yes, because Christ is in us. Is there hope of being able to overcome sin? Yes, because Christ is in us. But let's look to Christ. Let's depend upon Christ. Let's listen for the voice of, of the good shepherd. Let's stand together and pray this in. Jesus, we do rejoice that you have reconciled us to the Father, that you've loved us enough to come and die upon the cross, shed your blood, and rise again so that we could have peace with you, something that we could never accomplish. We do desire and choose to remain in the gospel through the marathon of life, to continue steadfastly in the gospel. We want to respond to the gospel and being willing to surrender to the calling that you've placed upon our lives right where we're at, right where you have planted us. And would you open our eyes and ears and our faith to read the reality that you, Jesus, are in us. You're the vine. We want to be connected to you, abide in you in a greater way.